I spent uh, nearly all of last week, this past week, in Tennessee at Sewanee, where I went to seminary, and I was there for our homecoming, our annual uh, seminary lectures that take place every year, and I got to be there and listen to uh, Rowan Williams, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury before uh, Justin Welby, and it was, it was phenomenal. He talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he talked about politics uh, during Bonhoeffer's time and politics today. He made some really great connections. Some of it really worked for me. A lot of it just went right over my head. Uh, as I talked to my wife at one point, she said, it sounds like I needed to do some continuing education before I went away to continuing education, just because some of it was so dense. But it was a wonderful time away. The thing that I enjoyed the most during my time away, though, was I got to be with uh, my seminary classmates. There were 25 of us that graduated in 2011. This was our our five-year reunion, and I got to be with 18 of the, the 25 of my classmates, and we got to laugh. We were able to pray together. We attended the lectures together. We ate good food. We drank some good wine, and then toward the end of the week, knowing that many of us would be preaching today, we sat down and we together spent some time going over this passage from Luke's gospel account and talking together about what we might want to say in our churches. We did uh, a small Bible study there, and it was a really wonderful experience for me. I told uh, those folks, I reminded my classmates, something that they already knew, but it's, it's something that Luis says to us often here at St. John's Church. He says to us, and you all know this, context reveals the content of the story. Have you all heard Luis say that before? What's happening around uh, the particular story here we're hearing on a day is, is important to uh, the whole of the story. Context reveals the content of the story. So I offered that to my classmates, I offer that to you, and I want to look a little bit uh, at the context of this reading from Luke chapter 17. If you remember, we're with Jesus, we're headed toward Jerusalem, we're headed toward the cross, toward the grave, and as we're on our way with Jesus, Jesus is teaching, He is preaching, He is healing people, He is sharing His wisdom, and His disciples are there with Him doing and listening to all of these things. Uh, He, in Luke chapter 16, which the last two Sundays we have been hearing from Luke chapter 16, He tells a couple of parables. Uh, Two Sundays ago, we heard Jesus tell the story of uh, the dishonest steward, the parable of the dishonest steward. You all remember that. Uh, Jesus talks about a man who is about ready to be uh, fired by his employer. This man decides that he is going to go and make some deals with the employers, those folks who who owe money to his employer. So he starts to say, how much money do you owe? $100, pay 80 and go away. How much money do you owe? $50, pay pay 40 and go away. And so he's he's trying to make some deals so that when he's he's fired by the man, these people will, will treat him nicely, treat him in a kind way. And at the end of that parable, Jesus says something that, for me, is very challenging, and I'm guessing it's, it's also challenging for you all at times. He says, you have a choice to make. He says, you cannot serve God, and you cannot serve money, mammon. He says, which one do you want to choose, God or money? And that's a tough thing for us to wrestle with sometimes. So that was two weeks ago. Last Sunday, we heard uh, one of my favorite parables, even though it is a very heavy parable. It's the parable of the rich man and 
poor Lazarus. Do you all remember that parable? The rich man feasts sumptuously. He's dressed in, in purple, very expensive purple and fine linens. He has a big house with a big gate around it. The poor man, poor Lazarus, he's dressed not in nice clothes, but in sores that cover his body. He doesn't eat. Uh, he doesn't feast sumptuously. Instead, he is just glad when he gets the, the scraps that come off the rich man's table. Uh, he doesn't live in a nice, big, fancy house. Instead, he, he lives outside of the gate of the man's house, the rich man's house. And the rich man has to walk over him, walk past him, just to, to get inside to do all of his things. At the end of their lives, we're told that poor Lazarus, he goes up into the good place. He's there comforted by Abraham, the rich man. He goes to the not-so-good place, and there he is tormented. And when I hear that story, when I read that story, I'm reminded that what we do in this life has eternal implications. The people that we serve in this life, that is important not only for today, but it's important for forever. We, as we hear Jesus telling that story, are really supposed to identify with the rich man, the rich person, and we are supposed to say, how can we, after hearing Moses and the prophets and Jesus, how can we make sure that we are serving the poor and the needy, those who are hurting right in front of us, those that we might even have to, to step over to get where we need to go? How are we going to serve those people? This is, this is tough stuff that Jesus is saying. And then today we get to Luke chapter 17, and we pick up really midway through the story. We don't even catch the first half of the story where Jesus says a few more things to his disciples. So I wanted to read that to you before uh, we go on. This is what Jesus says at the very beginning of Luke chapter 17, the four verses that precede the story that we heard today. He says, "'Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come.'" It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. This is really hard stuff. This is really intense stuff. And so it makes sense after hearing all of these things that the disciples at the beginning of our reading today would go to Jesus and they would say, Lord, increase our faith. Give us more faith so that we can do all of these things that you are telling us to do. And it makes me realize that you and me we are pretty much exactly the same as the disciples, aren't we? They are living their lives. They are working to follow Jesus, to live out what he's saying, and yet they are struggling with it. And I pray this very prayer often in my own life. Lord, increase my faith. Make me a better person. Give me a will to do all of these things that you are telling me to do. I often think if I had more faith, then I could serve more people. 
I wouldn't have all of these doubts in my life. Maybe I wouldn't sin as much. I would have all of the answers to the questions that you ask me. If I just had more faith, I can do all of these things that you have called me to do, Jesus. Has anyone ever said a prayer like that at some point in your life? But here's the thing. When the disciples say this to Jesus, he doesn't respond in a in a nice way. Instead, he's kind of snarky. He doesn't commend them. He, he challenges them. He said to them, if you just had faith the size of a tiny mustard seed, if you just had faith like that small seed, then you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and be thrown into the sea. I think that what what Jesus is telling those first disciples and what Jesus is, is telling us today is that it doesn't matter what, what size our faith is, big or small. What matters is that we use our faith, that we are out there doing these things that we read about and hear about on Sunday mornings, that we are living out our faith in the world. That that's what matters, not having a, a gigantic faith, but living the faith however we can in this world. That is what is important. I spent uh, a bit of my summer vacation with a, a, a stack of books that I took along with us to, to Charleston when we were down there for a couple of weeks. Uh, thing I'm, I'm sure that you all do the same thing when you go on vacation. You take some books with you to read. I had some really great books, new ones that I wanted to read, but I took along one, uh, one book that I've read uh, once before when I was in middle school that I wanted to reread again this summer. I took along uh, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. I haven't read it since I was in seventh or eighth grade. Uh, I wanted to reread that great book, and so for a few days this summer, I sat down and I reread that book, seeing if there was anything that I could uh, learn or use or think about uh, today. And, and there was. There was plenty to think about. It's an excellent book. If you all haven't read it, go and read it. If you've read it, go and read it again. Go and watch the movie. It's equally good. Uh, it is a wonderful book. I was thinking about that book this past week as I started to read this lesson from Luke's gospel account. I was thinking about a, a particular scene where Atticus, Atticus Finch is, is the lawyer, and he is preparing to defend Tom Robinson. Do you all remember this? Atticus is the lawyer in Macomb, Alabama in the 30s. He's there uh, defending Tom Robinson, who is a, a black man who has been accused of assaulting a white woman, and he is put in charge uh, of this man. He is put in, given, given his defense. And so, uh, in the scene that I was thinking about, uh, they have just brought Tom to make home the night before his, his trial is to start, his trial before an all-white uh, jury. And as they bring him to the jailhouse, Atticus is worried that something might happen to Tom during the night, that some of the men in the community might go and try to, to do him harm. So he decides to take his chair, he takes it, he puts it in front of the jailhouse and decides that he's going to stay there all night long until the trial begins the next morning. He goes, he's sitting there reading his newspaper, and as he's reading, a group of uh, white uh, men from the city uh, decide to come and 
try to get Tom so that they can do some terrible things to him. But Atticus stands firm there in front of the jailhouse. He, he won't leave. Off, uh, off to the corner, uh, we're told that Scout, Atticus's daughter, and Jim, Atticus's son, and Dill, their neighbor, uh, they're off sort of watching as this mob confronts Atticus in front of the jailhouse. And it's after they see them sort of yelling at Atticus that the three of them run over and stand there in front of the jail uh, with Atticus. And when Atticus tells them to leave, they decide they're not going to leave. These three kids are going to stay right there with Atticus. Scout, we're told, is looking out uh, at all of these men. She doesn't really recognize them. It's dark. She's not sure who they are. And then she she remembers one of them, Mr. Cunningham. Uh, her father had helped Mr. Cunningham at some point earlier uh, in, in her life, and she remembers Mr. Cunningham. So she looks at him and she says, Hey, hey, Mr. Cunningham, it's, it's me, Jean Louise Finch. Don't you, don't you remember me? I know your boy Walter. I go to school with him. We've had him over to our house for dinner. She says, Won't you, won't you say hello to Walter for me? And all of these men are sort of stunned as they sit, as they stand rather, and, and listen to this young girl uh, diffuse all of this tension. And finally, Mr. Cunningham looks at Scout, and he says, I, I remember who you are. Uh, I'll tell Walter you say hello. And then he says, let's go home, boys. And all of the men disperse and go back to their house. And Atticus is positive that nothing will happen to Tom that night. I was thinking about that because I think that's, that's what faith looks like. Faith the size of a mustard seed. Faith the size of a, a small girl who's willing to come forward. Faith that is uh, active in the world. The faith about which Jesus is speaking today is really not so much about believing all of the right things. That's a part of it, but that's not what Jesus is talking about today. The faith about which Jesus is speaking is doing your job, doing our job in this world. And we can do that whether we have a great faith or a small faith. We can be out in this world doing good in the name of Jesus Christ. And what does that look like? It's, it's caring for our neighbors. It is feeding the hungry. It is befriending the friendless. It is forgiving those who hurt us over and over and over and over again as many times as it takes. That's what faith looks like, and that is what Jesus is calling us to today. And here's the thing, when, when I do my part, when I live out my faith, when you do your, your part, when you live out your faith, great or small, those things begin to add up. Those things begin to build. That's how we change the world when we are all working together, when we are all living out our faith. I often think that in the church we, we imagine that we have to be someone like Francis of Assisi or Dorothy Day or Mother Teresa or Oscar Romero or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Desmond Tutu, some great person who seems to have all of the answers in order to be faithful people. But what Jesus says to us today is, your faith is enough. Your faith is good enough 
to make a difference in this world. I love what our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, often says in, in a lot of his sermons. He often ends with this, and I'll do the same thing. He says that, that on God's own, he won't. He says that on our own, we can't. But together with God and with each other, when we use our faith, we can and we will change the world. Amen.